You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful that you have brought us together on this Lord's Day. and Thank you for a season of thanksgiving and that leads so naturally into our, our season now of Advent, of anticipation for you and for your return into the world, um, the promises that you have given to us in your Son that the resurrection of the dead is assured because, Jesus, you have already been raised. I pray that you'll let us enter into that confidence and that hope in this season. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. Well, uh, good morning to you all. I, the, the, I, I, I believe, if my memory serves me correctly, that, that this is just a two-week series. Um, uh, I think that's right. Um, on Isaiah which kind of means we can do whatever we want. Um, I mean, it's just, it's just a lot in here. Uh, so I, I'm just, I'm just going to sort of fiddle around, if that's okay, uh, and move through this book. Uh, so, and I've been giving a lot of thought to Isaiah again lately. He's, he's kind of a friend that continues to return. Um, you know, within, within the early church, Isaiah was, was referred to at times as, as the fifth gospel. Um, because of the ways in which Isaiah the prophet so anticipated and shaped and, and provided a language system for the church to speak about the events of what God had done in time in Jesus Christ. So, so th- think of it this way. You have this incredible unveiling of what God has done in, in time in Jesus. And you have the disciples and the early apostles who have experienced this in an eyewitness way. Um, searching for a way to talk about what it is they have encountered. What's happened in our midst? What's this thing that God has done in time? And the only way any Jew of the first century would have known how to think through that would have been via um, the vehicle of the Scriptures of Israel. That's the means by which we're going to sort through what God is doing in time. Um, so, so if, if what this is kind of a, a limited metaphor, but if, if you think about this from the standpoint of say theater, the old the Old Testament provides the script, the redemptive script um, that in time gets played out in the drama of the New Testament events that we find um, with Jesus. And and this is if you begin to do a kind of searching, and and, and I've got a, a Bible here that's got all kinds of chain references in the side. Um, I, in, in my tradition growing up, it was kind of your fundamentalist bar mitzvah to get a, a Thompson train, chain reference Bible. None of you know about the, the old Thompson? I don't even know if they still sell those anymore. But um, to get your Thompson chain reference Bible was to enter into serious study of, of God's Word. Um, and what do you find in all these chain references? Well, if you tra- if you trace them through in the New Testament, you'll see the ways in which the Old Testament appears in the New Testament through various means. So so what are some of the ways in which the Old Testament appears in the New Testament? Well, obviously there's direct quotation. You know, you have this for example in Acts where it says, and as David said in the Psalms, yada yada yada. Or as Isaiah the prophet said, da 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 da. Or um, the technical terminology that's often used in the New Testament is as it was said or as it was written, gegroptai is, is, the, uh, is the Greek phrase that's often used, to introduce a direct quote from the Old Testament. But there are other ways in which the Old Testament makes its appearance known. And that's what um, 
various scholars will call allusions or echoes. In other words, it's not a direct citation, but there are allusions and echoes that are, that are taking place. Um, so, for example, when you have uh, Paul's doxology, which we talked about a few weeks ago in here at the end of Romans 11, Paul begins to say things like, who has known the mind of the Lord? And you hear that and you think, boy, that, that sounds familiar, actually. And the reason why it sounds familiar is because that's a quote from Isaiah, even though um, Paul doesn't tell you that's what he's doing. Or, or here's another one. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee bowing, every tongue confessing. And if you read that, you go, boy, that sounds kind of interesting. Or at least that sounds familiar. And then you realize, oh my goodness, that's that's almost a direct quote as well of Isaiah chapter 45. So the point is, you, you can't really pick or prick any apostolic writer from Matthew all the way to Revelation and then not begin to bleed on some level the scriptures of Israel. You'll find this all the way through. And if we were to do a kind of qualitative or maybe better quantitative analysis of the presence of the Old Testament and the New Testament and begin to grid this and so plot this in some grid um, about what, what seems to be more, what, what, what Old Testament books appear um, in, in more aggregate force. And, and the answer would be um, you had the Psalms would be near the top. Uh, Genesis would make its appearance quite a bit. Deuteronomy as well, but I don't think any of them would outdo Isaiah. Um, Isaiah just makes his appearance in the New Testament um, in various different places, and that's why the early church would often refer to this section as, as, the, um, as the fifth gospel. But some of you will recall, and I've mentioned this in other contexts, but you'll recall um, St. Augustine getting this kind of advice from the bishop, his bishop Ambrose in Milan, when, when Augustine was preparing for his baptism and his bishop uh, said to him, or, or he asked his bishop, what should I read to prepare for my baptism? And the answer that Ambrose gave to Augustine was, well, go read Isaiah the prophet because nothing will prepare you for your baptism or for a life in the gospel like the prophet Isaiah. And if you remember, I think this is in book eight of the Confessions, Augustine says, and I went... And I read Isaiah chapter 1, and I found the language so obscure there um, that I had to put it to the side until I could learn the Lord's style of language a little bit better. Now, I, I love that. I, I use that with my students all the time to try to encourage them. Listen, the prophets are hard work. Uh, Martin Luther said they have a strange way of talking. They seem to ramble on from one subject matter to another. If you get into the book of Jeremiah and try to plot Jeremiah from chapter 1 to chapter 50 on some chronological grid where you have this event leads to this event leads to this event, you will have such significant whiplash that you won't know what you're doing by the end of the book. Like I, in one book, you're in the in the period of um, of the early uh, early exile. Um, the next chapter, you're in a period of the of the late pre-exile. Then you're I mean, you just it's very hard to plot what's going on, and it takes a certain kind of sensitivity to the nature of the literature to gain a bead on what the prophets are doing. And I, Isaiah is really no exception, but Isaiah is special. Um, and Isaiah is special. And I think we see this by the way, even in in the ways in which the prophets are often ordered canonically, not always, but by and large, Isaiah is the prophet, uh, or at least the writing prophet, that often, often comes first. So um, that's why we're going to spend a little bit of time in Isaiah um, this, uh, this, uh, these next two weeks. So if you have a Bible or a phone or something like that, 
and you want to trace with me here. My goal today is to get us to chapter 12. Um, and 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 I I I'm, we're going to do it. Um, so when you th- and it's important I think to see the book of Isaiah as a whole um, shaped together in a strategically thoughtful way. Um, it, it's not always self-evident the way in which Isaiah is structured canonically, but it is shaped in a way that I think is rather important. So I'll show you this here even in the first few verses. Um, you have uh, the introduction or the superscription in verse 1. Then look, listen to verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. A very standard prophetic um, trope here or, or, or literary device. Calling on the created order to come into the heavenly courtroom to stand in as witnesses for uh, the, 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 the case that God has against His people. And, and listen, to, uh, this is not good news for Israel. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against Me. And that language there of rebellion that you have in verse 2, if you flip all the way back to the last chapter, Isaiah chapter 66... And you read the last verse of Isaiah 66. So here's the last verse of the whole book. And this is not a, I mean, this is not the kind of prophetic verse you want to put on a t-shirt for a church activity. Um, but here's how Isaiah ends. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have, and you notice the terminology here, rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Um, So what you see here is a kind of intentional shaping. Even the way in which Isaiah begins and ends that's centered around this concern about Judah's rebellion. The fact that Judah has has placed herself or uh, itself in a position of rebellion against against her God. And so then you see in verse 3, um, he began, uh, and the prophet is good at this, he begins to put his finger on exposed nerves. The ox knows its master. Even a donkey knows how to get to its master's crib. Um, but Israel does not know, and my people do not understand. And that, that's a very important turn of phrase here. Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Um, if you'll remember, for example, from the prophet Hosea, the people of God suffer because of lack of knowledge. Knowledge, knowing, is such a significant covenantal term in the Old Testament. And I think we know this by instinct, but it's worth at least repeating. The knowledge here that the prophet is talking about is not mere intellectual assent. Um, knowledge here, I think, is probably best understood within the frame of what the Reformers would identify as faith. Because faith for the Reformers, and we, we, we breathe this air around our church here, faith for the Reformers is not merely intellectual assent. It's also confidence placed in something. So I believe that that's true, and I'm willing to place everything on the line because it's true. It's not mere intellectual assent. It's also the placing of one's confidence on the promises of God. And why is Israel suffering? Israel is suffering under judgment because they do not know and they do not understand. 
And that's really important as a theme that you will trace throughout Isaiah because knowledge and understanding comes through what vehicles in the prophets? They come through seeing and hearing. We see what God has done. We hear God's Word. And God's Word, God's prophetic Word, I was just, um, it sounds geeky here, but I was just reading Aquinas on this yesterday. Um, Aquinas talks about the significance of God's Word in the prophets of the Old Testament as an actual agent that's to be identified with God and yet distinct from God in His sending. This is also Trinitarian language here. Um, God's Word is sent to God's people so that they can hear and that they can see. Without the hearing of the ear, there's no seeing with the eye. Um, And and what do you have in Isaiah chapter 6? So flip the page here in Isaiah 6. My people are suffering because they do not know, they do not understand, they're sinful. Then you get to Isaiah chapter 6, which is... I guess maybe best understood as, as a recommissioning scene. Um, lots of debates on why Isaiah 6 is where it is in the book of Isaiah. But, but look at this here. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. I, I, can't, I, do, I never grow tired of Isaiah 6, by the way. I just think this is a rich text. He is high and lifted up. Room the Nassau. High and lifted up. The train of his robe, just the hem of his garment, fills the whole temple. And above him stood the seraphim. I've mentioned this before in here, but I'll go ahead and say it again. The seraphim are, fr- frankly, flying serpents. They're, they're, they're serpentine angelic figures. We're, we're not talking here about um, cute Getty angels you know, that you have sort of set out on your mantelpiece during this time of year. If one of these flew toward you, it would be a very bad day, I think is the point. So you have the seraphim standing. They have six wings. They cover their face. They cover their feet. They fly. One calls out to the other one. And here you have the famous line that we use in our liturgy with some regularity. Holy, holy, holy. Think of this in these terms. Completely other. Distinct. Um, This is both a moral claim about God's purity, but also a claim about what we in theological terms would identify as the creator-creature distinction. Um, There is a divide between God's being and what it means for you and for me and for all of reality to to exist. There's a a distinction there. He's completely other. He's dependent on nothing outside of himself for existence or fullness. He's completely full within his own being. He's holy. He's in need of nothing. Um, and this is what Isaiah is getting to see in an unmediated fashion. And it's not a happy moment for him. The whole earth is the fullness of his glory. And the foundations of the whole threshold shook as the voice of him who called. And the whole house was filled with smoke. I mean, well, I, I don't know. This is, this is um, uh, um, uh, House of Horrors 101 in the temple of God. And I said, and we heard uh, Doug Webster mention this today, here's the seventh woe that comes from Isaiah chapter 5. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. This is the right response when one comes into the presence of the holiness of God. And, and you'll notice this, by the way, as a pattern within the Bible. The pattern in the Bible is, when people have this kind of unmediated encounter with the living God, exposed in His glory and His otherness, Um, their self-consciousness becomes highly acute and sensitive. In other words, they become overly self-aware. I mean, I'm not sure how you sort of process these things. This is one of the ways in which I try to... I mean, I I pray about this, actually. Um, There's a freedom that comes, I think, 
Um, a genuine humility that can come um, with not being bound by self-consciousness. Uh, by not being bound with over, overly reflective thoughts about the self. Now, there's a healthy part of that as well. But where we just sort of turn to ourselves again and again, to be freed from that is, I think, something worth praying for. But no one ever has that opportunity when they're in the presence of God in their sinful state. When you're in the presence of God in the state of your moral culpability and your finitude, when you stand before infinity, you become acutely self-conscious and self-aware. That, that is a pattern within the Bible from beginning to end. Think about John on the island of Patmos in Revelation chapter 1. This is the risen Jesus Christ that he sees. And what does John, who, who leaned on the breast of that self-same figure at the final supper, at the last supper, is now seeing Jesus in his unmediated and glorified state. And what does he do? He falls at his feet as if he were a dead man. Um, that's the response. And that's Isaiah's response. Woe is me. Um, I'm done. I'm, it's over. I'm lost. Because I dwell in the midst of a people of an unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king, um, Adonai Zabaoth, the Lord of hosts. Well, you know the rest of the story. We've got to kind of fly through this here. A seraphim flew to him. Uh, it, it goes from bad to worse. Uh, and he had a burning coal in the, in the, with, in, in the, tong, the tongs from the altar and singed his mouth. This is wild. Um, we could talk about this a lot, but just as, as an aside, the, 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 I, don't, I think we would, we would tend to think of the singeing needing to take place in our hearts. That's what we would say. We need our hearts to be cleansed. But Isaiah is a prophet, and he's called to the ministry of the Word. This is what he's called to be and to do. And it's the location of his lips, which is where his vocation and his calling reside, where the cleansing most especially needs to take place. So he recognizes his sinfulness, and his sinfulness is a barrier to his vocational faithfulness. He cannot fulfill his vocation in his current state. And so God takes it upon himself via the seraphim to do an atoning ritual for Isaiah right there in the Holy of Holies, and the, and the coals go right on his lips. It's remarkable. And then he says, he touched my mouth, and the angel says, this is touch your lips, and your guilt is taken away. Your asham is gone, and your sins have been covered. They've been atoned for. So that's all set up, right? And it's set up for this. So now that Isaiah is prepared and ready for his prophetic recommission, he hears the Lord in his own divine counsel saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. And then he says this, go and say to, and if you've taken any classes with me enough, you've heard me repeat this ad nauseum, but notice the pronouns here. Go and say to this people. The moment Isaiah heard God turn that phrase, Isaiah must have thought, this will not go well. Um, that's the same language that God used with Moses and Mount Sinai around the scene of the golden calf where God says to Moses, go down to your people. Um, this is the second child of Hosea the prophet to Gomer. Lo ami, not my people. So the fact that there's a distancing pronoun here, don't go and say to my people, go and say to this people. The fact that that's the language that's being used is not good. And notice what we have here. Here are our themes, all the way back in chapter 1, of hearing and seeing and understanding. Here's Isaiah's prophetic message. 
Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. So this, these themes here, by the way, are themes that hold together and they make their way through the whole of Isaiah the prophet like a red thread. Blindness and deafness. They cannot hear so that it leads to understanding and they cannot see anymore so that it leads to genuine perception about what God is doing in the world. Um, that's the act of God's judgment. They cannot hear and they cannot see. And when you get to Isaiah chapter 35 and you get to Isaiah chapter 40, when we have the great reversal in Isaiah's prophetic drama, what's, how is the prophetic reversal demonstrated? They can see again and they can hear again. Their ears have been opened and their eyes have been opened. Isaiah chapter 61, uh, this as an aside. Um, in the year... Uh, remember, uh, uh, Jesus preached this in Luke chapter 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to announce good news to the prisoners, to those who are bound. Now, I don't want to get into sort of lexical details here, but the language there is probably best understood. You are preaching the opening of eyes to those who are blind. So that's the language here that the, the prophet uses. So all of this that you have in Isaiah chapter 1 through 39 on the front side of Isaiah tends to emphasize a really significant theme. And here's the theme, if I can put it in a nutshell. The theme is this. If God's people refuse to be his people, then they may not be a people at all. See, what's the covenantal formula? I will be your God and you will be my people. The unstated intention of that covenantal formula that we read in Deuteronomy from beginning to end is this. But if you will, if I am not your God, then there's no guarantee that you will remain my people either. The covenantal relationship can become undone or at least can hemorrhage in such a way uh, that it's not based on the kind of stability that it was intended to be based on that could lead to the human flourishing and peace that we heard about in our sermon today. Now, so that's the, that's the fraught danger that you have going on here within the first part of Isaiah. And yet, I want to take away a little bit from what I just said. Isaiah chapter 1 through 39 is not, is not all doom and gloom. In fact, this is part of the Isaiah 1 to 39 that I find continually fascinating that interwoven through all these moments of what you might consider to be a doom and gloom message from Isaiah the prophet. You're not going to be able to hear anymore. You're not going to be able to see anymore. In the middle of all of that, you have interspersed these lightning flashes, these rays of, of gospel hope that lean the people of God toward the future of God's salvation for them. Because this is what we find on final analysis, so, so that I don't bury the lead. God's covenantal commitments to His people transcend their rejection of Him in the covenantal relationship. In other words, even their no and their, and their refusal to follow after God as their God will not nullify the covenant because God takes it on His own account and in His own way. The arm of the Lord, says Isaiah, is not too short to save so that God will make salvation happen for them as a gift. And you see this as you begin to look at the larger sort of display of Isaiah. And let me give you a, a sense of this. Isaiah 1-39 to you'll find these two terms together all the way through. Uh, righteousness and justice. Where is righteousness? Where is justice? And those terms are terms that are sort of filled out within the life of Israel in ways that you might anticipate. 
Now, what does it mean to be righteous and just? It means to rightly order oneself toward God and toward one, to one's neighbor. And God is calling on the people to live into a righteous existence, the existence of His own call and election on them, but they refuse to do it. But when you move to Isaiah chapter 40 to 55, and this is such a fascinating move within, the, within Isaiah's larger tableau, when you move in Isaiah 40 to 55, you don't see the collocation or the linking together of justice and righteousness. What you find in Isaiah 40 to 55, think Isaiah 53, think Isaiah 42, think Isaiah 40. What you find there is um, righteousness linked with Yeshua or salvation or gift. So that which Israel is called to be and to enter into in the first 39 chapters, that's the reason and the warrant, the rationale for the, for God's judgment on them. And chapters 40 to 55 become the gift that God gives to them. He gives them this as a gift. And there are indications, even in the first part of Isaiah, that God will do this in time. And that's why all of that was drumroll, please, to Isaiah 12. And I'm, I don't completely know why, but Isaiah 12 has got, gotten its fangs in me. We sing it all the time here at church. Right? I was hoping we would do it today, but I guess we don't do that in Advent. Well, here it is. You will say in that day. Now, that terminology there, in that day, is future time language. And if you move the car back into Isaiah chapter 10, you'll see that phrase appear again and again. In that day. What's that day? It's the future day of God's salvation. It's the future day when God says, I'm going to overthrow your own no toward me with my divine initiative and yes toward you. So there's the promise that God will do that, that He will, that He will make this cut down tree a grow with uh, with some seed, with some sprouts, with some branches into a, into by the time we get to Isaiah chapter sixty one, a full grown oak of God's own righteousness. So here you have uh, continuing with this. You will say in that day, "I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me." Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust. I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Now, I want to sit with this for a second. Because I'm going to do the kind of thing right now that I encourage my students at Beeson not to do with regularity. Um, but I'm going to tell you that I think the translations miss it um, here. And I, I want to talk about this for a little bit because I actually think... Um, I think there, there's something really uh, gospel-shaped here to the, to the way in which the Hebrew language actually structures what's going on. So do you see this, this verse here, or the, second, uh, 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 the first one? For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Now, I could really lose you here for a second, but I, I, I want, I'm going to talk about Hebrew grammar. Oh, this is, might be a disaster. Um, but I want to talk about Hebrew grammar just for a few seconds. All of this here is sort of presented in what you might call a, a perfective sense. You were angry with me. Um, you have uh, removed your anger from me so that you will comfort me. 
And Hebrew has a particular way of demonstrating these perfective verbal senses. Um, that's not what's here, though. All the translations do this, I've checked, except for, I think, maybe the NIV fiddles with it a little bit. And the NIV, by the way, is often surprisingly good on the Old Testament, I should say that. Um, I don't know why I said surprisingly. I grew up in a world where the NIV was often referred to as the new and accurate version. Um, and and I, I don't think that's fair at all, actually. Um, but what's going on here? Let me, let me give you my own sort of gloss on what I think is happening. Because the, the verbs here are, are um, either future or what we might call modal. So that you would translate it like this. Although you were angry with me, um, let your anger turn away so that you may comfort me. So can we look at the verse again and can I gloss it with a gentle rendering here? You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you were angry with me, let your anger be turned away so that you might comfort me. Do you hear? Can you, can you sense how that slightly alters the setting and the nature of the praise that's going on here in Isaiah chapter 12? Because Isaiah chapter 12, if, if the Hebrew language is telling us something about how to read this, and I think it is. By the way, Calvin picks this up in his commentary. One of the few commentators of the, of the pre-modern period, um, Calvin is remarkably good at reading the Hebrew text. Calvin picks up on this. He gets it. This is not said from the standpoint of demonstrating praise and thanksgiving because something has occurred. It's put in the, in the frame of request. And a request that's built around the confidence that the request that's being asked is based on the character of the one who's being asked. And it's as good as done, even though we're not experiencing it yet. See that? It's not you have turned your anger away from me. Let your anger be turned away. In other words, the moment of judgment that the prophet and the people of God are experiencing now, and we can think of this historically, right? Historically, this would be what? The Neo-Assyrian onslaught. And they were bad hombres, right? When you think about what the Neo-Assyrians did in the 8th century, going down from the northern kingdom, destroying that, the significant kingdom, moving down into the Shephelah region, the plain region in, in uh, Judah, and, and just completely messing up that whole area. Um, read Micah chapter 1 and you'll get a sense of this. And then moving moving like a shepherd's crook up into Jerusalem. And then God miraculously saves them from Sennacherib and his onslaught. But So Judah was spared. Right? They were spared from the Neo-Syrians. But not completely spared. We're talking about a significant blow to their infrastructure that had taken place. Think about this. The Pentagon for uh, ancient Judah. Uh, Lachish. Um, that, that's how I think about it. As the, the military center. The second place to Jerusalem in ancient, in ancient Judah was completely destroyed by the Neo-Assyrians in the 8th century here. So, even though we know about the great story of God saving Judah and Jerusalem ultimately from the Neo-Assyrians and their onslaught, I mean, there was significant damage that was done in the middle of that. So, that, that's a historical maybe context for understanding something that's going on here, but I, I don't think we're meant to reduce it to that. I think this is, and, and by the way, the, the tradition of the church has read Isaiah 12 in this way, and that's why we sing it in church all the time. It's a recognition that even though now we have not fully experienced the full reach of God's redemption and His promise. 
right? And this is the whole language of Paul. This is, I mean, these are the cute phrases that theologians toss around, like the already and the not yet, right? And we use these terms to really kind of help us understand something that the Bible is claiming. We experience the full promises of God already, and yet their benefits and their full reach we have not yet experienced yet. We are still going to the cemetery. The resurrection of the dead has not occurred yet. We still live in the warp and woof of human existence and the judgment on sin and the reality of sin that still messes things up all the time, both vertically and horizontally in our relationship with God and with others. And the prophet gets it. And here, that's why the prophet is saying here, would you please turn your anger away from us so that you will comfort us? And here's something beautiful, right? So think about that phraseology. It's request. Um, it's it's um, invocation to the Lord for forgiveness, for the removal of His anger. And what happens in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1? It's the same language. The same. I mean, think Handel's Messiah. You can hear the, the harpsichord beginning to sort of chirp away on the side, right? Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And do you hear the language there in Isaiah 40? Nachamu, nachamu ami. Comfort, comfort my people. You see, back in chapter 6, where he's talking to Isaiah, what does he say? Go to this people. Right? And that's when you feel like, oh, so thing, the train's off the tracks. Something's wrong here. But in the middle of that train being off the track, you have the prophet in Isaiah chapter 12 praising God for being their Savior and their song and their salvation. And all of these, these, um, this, these appellatives that are used to describe the saving character of God are being used in full force even though the prophet is not experiencing it yet. Will you not turn your anger away from us so that we may be comforted? And by the time you get to Isaiah chapter 40, that's exactly what's happening. God is turning away His anger and He is bringing His comfort not on this people, not on your people, but on my people, says your God. Um, that's Advent hope. That's why I like Isaiah 12. I think Isaiah 12 is a nice Advent hymn because it situates us in the human reality that none of us can transcend. We know, don't we, that the reach of sin and sin's consequences relationally, globally, politically, I mean in every area that sin begins to move its tentacles to make this world not what it's supposed to be. It's askew. It's off. We, we cry for peace, but there isn't real peace. There's no genuine shalom. There's no, there's no human flourishing without any threat around the corner. That's why I love the language here in Isaiah 12. We will not be afraid. Isn't that great? I mean, just think about this even from an existential standpoint and the ways in which we live. Um, and I don't, I don't mean to be sort of Debbie Downer here this morning, but we all, we've all lived life long enough to know that you experience these moments in our earthly existence that are rich and full and good. And you think, this is rich, this is full, and this is good. This is how life is intended to be. And yet all of us know, don't we, that just around the corner, something is waiting to throw that train right off that track. Whether it's the phone call, whether it's the discouraging note, whether it's, and the list goes on, whether it's the bad report from the doctor, whether it's that one child, and there's always that one, you know. Um, so whatever it is. Um, and to, to let us know that, um, we, in other words, it's hard to experience life without being afraid, right? And here you have the, 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 the prophet letting us know 
that he so trusts in the future saving hand of God in that day that he can praise him for his salvation in this moment, even though the fullness of that reach and of that salvific um, activity of God on our behalf has not been actualized yet in our existence. That is an Advent kind of existence. We're caught in between. The promises of God being revealed in Jesus, and yet the promises of God not yet fulfilled to their fullest. Um, because we believe in, in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Anybody want to ask a question before we go? Thoughts? Reflections? Frustrations? Lord, bless us as we uh, leave here today. Um, Lord, thank you for Isaiah 12. You are our salvation. Help us to trust. Help us to not be afraid. Lord God, you are our strength. You are our song. You've become our salvation. We follow you, Jesus, in John chapter 7 and see you stand in the middle of all those people and say, draw from me and a spring of ever-living water will flow from you. You tell us that in Isaiah, with joy we will draw water from the wells of salvation. And on that day, Lord, we will give thanks to you, we'll call upon your name, we'll make your deeds known among all the peoples. Lord, teach us to sing in the season of Advent. Even, Lord, while we wait in the tensions that we feel in our lives, give us the gift, Lord, of singing and of gratitude that you are our salvation and that we are your people. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.